Sangam is someone who knows he's being called by God to an experience that is an adventure and is a journey. And uh, of course, we expect pilgrimages to be beautiful and enjoyable, but are not infrequently marked by, by some unexpected challenges. This is Father Daniel Cardo. He's pastor of Holy Name Parish in the Archdiocese of Denver. Full disclosure, he's my pastor. Anyway, Father Daniel took a group of about 20 young adults on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land this year. It wasn't his first time making a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. He's been there three times. But this year was exceptional. Exceptional because Father Daniel and his 20 pilgrims left for Israel on March 8th, just days before the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus outbreak a pandemic. When we left, there were no restrictions in the U.S. There was talk. I mean, clearly something was happening, but we had no idea that it was going to get that crazy. Hey, everybody, you're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. Most of us these days are seeing a lot less of the world outside of our doors. For many of us, the only time we travel at all is when we take a walk around the neighborhood with the dog or drive five minutes to the grocery store. Those who work outside the home every day have a different reality. They see less traffic on their commute, sure, but more difficulty getting everywhere they need to go. Going anywhere is getting more and more inconvenient. And with the travel industry and government agencies preparing for new safety measures, it's only going to get harder. So we wanted to give you a taste, a reminder of travel, and especially of a certain kind of Catholic travel. We wanted to remind you about pilgrimages. Catholics have been making pilgrimages for centuries. Most of the time, a pilgrimage involves traveling to a place that has religious significance like Jerusalem or places where the Blessed Virgin Mary has appeared, Fatima in Portugal or Lourdes in France. I have been on more than a few pilgrimages myself. I love pilgrimages. And there's a good chance that you've been a pilgrim too. If you have, you know that going on a pilgrimage requires some detachment from expectations. Pilgrimages always involve surprises. This week on the program, we have three stories about pilgrimages with unexpected outcomes. A proposal gone wrong on the Camino de Santiago de Compostelo in Spain and the story of a life-changing accident on a pro-life pilgrimage across the United States. But first, let's go back to Father Daniel and his group of pilgrims who were preparing a pilgrimage to the Holy Land just as the coronavirus reached pandemic levels. Here's our producer, Kate Oliveira. The group flew out of Denver International Airport on March 8th. It was a Sunday evening. Their first stop was London. They had a long layover, so they left the airport and spent part of the day exploring the city. I'm very familiar with, with London, so it was just a, a fun day in which we, we got to offer Mass at a beautiful church and get to see some of the, the sights on our way to Tel Aviv. Father Daniel said the group was in really high spirits after spending the day in London. They loaded a bus that took them back to the airport to catch their next flight to Tel Aviv. As the bus pulled up to the airport, Father Daniel got a call. Father Daniel was actually sitting in front of me. You could almost feel 
the tension. And I just was like, oh no, oh no. This is Brianna Ferenc. She was a pilgrim on the trip. He literally gets off the phone, like, as the bus stops. And he's like, I think he started with, you guys, this is not a joke. I don't think we're going to be able to make it. That call Father Daniel got, it was from their travel agency. Israel's prime minister had just announced plans to close Israel's borders to help prevent the spread of the coronavirus. I just felt my heart sink. Like, uh, I so badly want to believe that this isn't true, but okay, what, what do you do now? Everyone filed off the bus as Father Daniel went to speak with the airline about their bags. They weren't sure how long they would have to wait. They weren't sure what was going to happen next. Someone suggested they pray the rosary while they wait. Everyone agreed. Minutes after finishing that rosary, Father Daniel came back with the news. They were going to fly to Tel Aviv, and they might be one of the last groups to fly into the country. I said, we can go, that's confirmed, but we will have to be flexible. We might have to come back earlier. We might have to stay a few days later. We don't know. If we want to take the risk, we go but we can come back now. <laughs> so uh, it was crazy and everyone wanted to go. Going to Israel really felt, and being able to get into the country felt like literally going to the promised land. And after a lot of uh, uncertainties, being able to, to get there, it, it really was a providential thing. I have no question at all that, that God wanted it to give us uh, that time there. They arrived in Israel early Tuesday morning, just as the Israeli government announced anyone who entered the country would have to self-quarantine for two weeks. The policy wouldn't go into effect for a couple of days, so the group was cleared to move about the country. They went from the airport in Tel Aviv to Galilee in northern Israel. Father Daniel said it was immediately clear to him that this pilgrimage would be much different than his past pilgrimages to the Holy Land. It was another planet. There were no tourists. There were very few, rather, but very few. When we went to Canaan the first day, there was nobody else in the church, literally. That never happens. It was just so silent. Like, normally these places are are crowded, crowded, crowded. Like, the last time I was there, I mean, most places you had just a few seconds to, like, venerate that site and that spot and and then you're yelled at to move and it's very difficult to pray but I think almost every place we went we had at least a time where we were the only group there and it was just silent. As we were there things were escalating in everywhere in the world in the U.S. then for the first time we started talking about the U.S. closing borders might there be some kind of uh, quarantine when we came back? Those things were not at all part of any conversation before we left. But they were definitely part of the conversation as we were there. The group was in its second day in Galilee when they were told they would likely have to cut their trip short. They originally planned to be in the Holy Land for 10 days. Now it looked like they'd be lucky to get five. So they left Galilee to spend some time in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is always a little bit uh, crazier, and yet it was very, very different than what it normally is. I got to spend a brief amount of time, but but at least some time, absolutely by myself on Calvary. Nobody else was there. 
it really felt very different and in that say in that sense uniquely blessed i mean i i don't think i'm too far if i say that at least for the few days that we got to be there it was probably the best time frame at least in a century or maybe even more while in jerusalem father daniel got a call from their travel agency the group was booked for a flight later that night all in all they would spend three days in israel I felt sad for for the other pilgrims who clearly didn't get to see some very important sites. And yet, it's very clear that that was the right decision. And I think, in a way, the Lord, like the miracle of the uh, he he multiplied that time we were there. Like, we all talked about it. it. We couldn't believe that we were only there for three days. I felt like we were there at least a week. Like, that time was just so stretched for us. and all the silence and thoughts we were able to experience while we were there and the places that we were at really allowed for that. It was pretty strange coming back. I mean, one, just the, you know, physical exhaustion of all that traveling and being in so many continents, time zones, um, but also just the world we were returning to was so, is so different than how we left. Non-essential businesses were closing their doors as cases of the coronavirus continued to rise. Schools were canceling classes and moving online. Thousands of Americans were applying for unemployment after losing their jobs. And thousands more were moving from working in offices to working from home. On one of our flights, I don't remember which one, is when we learned that um, there's no public masses. And that was pretty, that was pretty heartbreaking. Brianna also learned that her parents had tested positive for the virus. Yeah, just coming home to like all of this kind of exploding all at once. Um, also at the same time while you're still processing where you were just living and in the Tilka Ridge and it was just, yeah, it was kind of strange and also it was very uncertain, like this kind of world we were coming back to. Israel closed all holy sites two days after the group left Jerusalem. Every tourist was ordered to self-quarantine in their hotel and practice social distancing. So, I mean, had we stayed for another day or two, we would have been locked in a room, uh, who knows for how long. So the Lord really took care of us in amazing ways. And uh, it was a wonderful experience, all in all. Brianna's parents have since recovered from the virus. Both Father Daniel and Brianna told me that they would make the pilgrimage again, in a heartbeat, even with the trials and unexpected changes they faced. You know, I was joking, you guys will be able to tell your kids and your grandkids. I was in Israel when the world broke down because of the coronavirus. And uh, it was just a unique experience. We came back to a different world, but strengthened by by the certainty that God really does take care of us and that when we trust in Him, we'll be safe. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Kate Oliveira. This next pilgrimage story is pretty personal for me. It starts with the summer of 2001. 
I Was 18, Lady Marmalade, Eve, and Matchbox 20 were on the radio, The Princess Diaries was in movie theaters. And that summer, I walked some 3,000 miles from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. to pray for an end to abortion. It was a pilgrimage called Crossroads. If you've never heard of Crossroads, it's a walking pilgrimage across the United States that takes place each summer. Teams of young people, college kids mostly, walk one of three routes from the West Coast to the East Coast. They walk along the edges of frontage roads wearing white t-shirts with pro-life printed on them in large block font. And while they're walking, they pray. Weekends are spent speaking at parishes and talking with youth groups and praying outside of abortion clinics, all advocating for the dignity of the unborn. Crossroads was started in 1995 by some college students who were inspired by John Paul II. Today, Crossroads is pretty organized and systematic and well-planned. But in those early years, like back in 2001, things were still very grassroots. And a lot of things were still being figured out. One thing that hasn't changed, though, is the prayer. The prayer is the point. It's a pilgrimage of prayer across the United States to pray for an end to abortion and for a culture of life. Anyway, I walked crossroads back in 2001. I did the southern route, passing through California and Texas and Georgia and the Carolinas, and a lot of things happened during that pilgrimage. But one thing in particular stands out in my mind, and that story involves my friend Amy Bender. On Crossroads, you're on a team with about 10 other people, and if you didn't know them before, you really get to know each other by the end. I mean, you spend several months with your teammates as pretty much your only company. And when you're not walking in the heat with bruises or blisters, you're living in these tiny RVs together or staying at people's houses. It wasn't like the kind that the bands use, like the big, beautiful RVs. It was like a really tiny you know, really small RV. And most of the team is really young. Amy was 20 or 21 that summer. I was 18. You know, you're just learning who you are, really. So it was, that part of the walk was so hard. We called Amy to ask her about her memory of that pilgrimage. She said it was really hard for her. Amy has a strong personality. She did even then. She said she butted heads with a lot of people on the pilgrimage, and I can verify that's true. I love Amy. I did then, and I do now. And part of what I love about her is her passion, her determination, her strong will. But yeah, in a little RV with a lot of people, having a strong will can be a little bit hard, right? Especially when it's hot. One weekend toward the end of the pilgrimage, our team stopped in Atlanta. Amy told us she went to confession while we were there. And I really just, like, poured my heart out about how hard this had been, how I felt like I had failed in a lot of ways of really being a Christian and, you know, um, all of these things. And I really felt like I didn't hold anything back, and it was a real kind of moment of change for me. Like, I realized God was there to forgive me, and He was also there to help me, and this was going to be a good thing in the end. After that confession, I really felt like such a change in my heart. But, you know, just keep in mind, like, we started in California and this was Atlanta. <laughs> it was like a long, a long road in between, you know, a long road of a lot of, a lot of stuff. And so 
in Atlanta, I really felt God lift a lot of these things off of my heart, and I really felt like Him change me. About a week later, we were in North Carolina. We had about two weeks of walking left before we would reach Washington, D.C., and we were feeling pretty good about the end of our pilgrimage. One of those mornings, I don't know if it was, uh, my memory is a little bit broken just because of, of what happened next, but um, so I'm not sure if it was that morning that we went to Mass or it was maybe the morning before, but we went to Mass somewhere in North Carolina. So I remember thinking like, gosh, like this is going to be awesome. Like when it's over, you know, I'm going to move ahead. I'm going to focus on school. I'm going to do all these things. And I just felt like it was sort of like, like a period, you know, <laughs> like at the end of a sentence and I was going to be able to move on. And at this mass, I had this overwhelming sense of this will never be over. Like I kept kind of hearing those words, like in, at mass, like in my mind, like, this will never be over. And I remember thinking that was really strange because I was looking forward to the end of this walk. The day of that Mass, or maybe the next day, something happened. Amy and I were walking along a two-lane road. There were tobacco fields on both sides of us. There were no sidewalks, so we walked in the grass. It was like dusk. We were almost done walking for the day, and Amy and I were doing a five-mile shift. That's how it works. You walk in pairs and shifts of about five miles. Well, Amy was walking behind me, and we were praying the rosary, and I was leading it. But at some point, right after a car passed us, Amy stopped saying her part of the prayers. And at first, I was annoyed because I thought Amy just, like, stopped praying with me or something. But after a minute or two, I turned around, and Amy was just gone. I could see that Amy's shoes, her sneakers, were in the shoulder of the road. They were just sitting there, her sneakers, like she just took them off. But I couldn't see her. I ran back, I ran past her shoes, and then I found her like 30 feet back from those shoes on her back in a drainage ditch. The car hit me. And I don't, I honestly... My memory, I have no memory of the accident. And really, my memory, even the days before, is very fuzzy. But I know that this car hit me, and it was going very fast. When I got to Amy, she was, well, I mean, she looked like she'd been hit by a car. The funny thing is, I don't remember a fast car passing us, but I remember what it was like when I got to Amy. My liver was lacerated, my kidneys were punctured. Um, my lungs collapsed, my ribs were broken, the right side of my body had received most of the impact. My right leg was really both bones in the, from the knee down were totally broken. Her bones were sticking out of her legs, her stomach was bleeding a lot, and she was just crumpled in this way that was totally unnatural, like a body shouldn't be arranged like that. But. Here's what I'll never forget. Amy still had her rosary in her hand, and her mouth was moving, her lips were moving. I put my ear to her lips, and I heard what she was saying. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Amy was praying the rosary, 
I don't know exactly what first aid I did, but I remember that I took my shirt off because I think for like a tourniquet because one of her legs was bleeding pretty bad. And I tried to call 911, but we were in a tobacco field in North Carolina in 2001. There was no cell phone service. So I went to the road and I tried to flag down a car. A few cars passed me and didn't stop. And I really can't say I blame them. I was this big, shirtless, crazy looking guy with blood on me jumping up and down and trying to flag a car as the sun went down. I looked like something out of a horror movie. But eventually, a car did stop. And soon there were ambulances and police cars, and we got a hold of our team, and Amy and I went to the hospital. There's more to the story, but in short, Amy was at this rural hospital, and then she was flown to another hospital in a bigger city. And I remember... I tried to hang on to that rosary that she'd been praying, but somehow at the hospital it got lost, and I kept thinking that whole night that I had to find it. I don't, I don't even know why. Somebody called her parents and made plans for them to fly from Texas. We all prayed, but nobody really thought that she would live. But somehow I survived. <laughs> and again, the next few days and even weeks are very blurry because they did put me into an, a coma. Uh, to try to stop a lot of the bleeding or, you know, uh, get my injuries under control. But when I came to a few days later, I just, I, I heard those words again, like in my mind, like this will never be over. And I thought, yes, like I, I instantly knew, like this pilgrimage for life, it will go on forever. Like I will have to, I need to offer this walk and these injuries, I need to offer it all to God for the rest of my life, for, for the end to this atrocity to abortion. And I knew instantly, like it was my first thought when I woke up. The accident was a hit and run. We still don't know who hit Amy that evening. The police said they investigated it, but we were from out of town and I've, I've always had my doubts. Anyway, after the accident, our team decided to finish our pilgrimage. We walked to Washington, D.C. We prayed for an end to abortion and for a culture of life. At the National Shrine where the pilgrimage ended, I knelt down before Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament and you guys, I wept. Amy spent about three months in the hospital in North Carolina. Then she was flown back home to Texas and she went to another rehabilitation hospital. And it was at that hospital in Texas that Amy tried to stand up for the first time in months. Like I hadn't stood for months and months. So like the first time I stood at the rehab hospital in Texas, I, um, I just started throwing up and I couldn't stop. Like just from the vertical, I guess, or whatever, from the, just from standing for the first time. It took Amy weeks to be able to stand for more than five or ten minutes. That alone, I just, <laughs> I remember dreading seeing them come in with this apparatus where they like strapped you in to stand you up and I just was like, oh God, and I felt bad for the rehab. I was like, y'all, y'all have to clean up this mess every time I stand up. Oh, it was just horrible. Amy also had to regain the use of her right arm. 
I had broken my scapula in the right side of my back and um, I had like a frozen shoulder from just not, I didn't use that part of my body for so long. The good thing is she was already left-handed so she was able to write, but she remembers the therapist giving her like a ceramic to paint with her right hand. I never thought I'd, I'd ever do something. So, I mean, it was so difficult and I, and I look and I have that little ceramic and it, it looks like a two-year-old painted it. <laughs> So it was just a long, long, long road. Amy eventually did regain use of her right arm, and she was able to learn to walk again. It was a long road with some real obstacles, and she says the accident drastically aged her body. They said, if you're able to walk again and regain your ability, the real long-term thing for you is that the injuries will basically have aged your body, like you're going to feel much older than you actually are. Today, Amy and her husband have four kids. The kids see the scars. Amy said she hasn't told them how the accident happened. But they know their mom doesn't have as much energy as other moms. I can play with them. I can do stuff. But then I need to lay down quite often, like, throughout the day. I have to get off of my legs. Like, I really, my legs are just pretty much always in some kind of pain. But really, that's a small price to pay, I think, for being alive and being able to still, I I have four beautiful children. I, um, you know, I've had a beautiful life and I, I, and I'm very, very aware that I have been given life twice. Like, I'm very aware of that. Amy often looks back on the time she spent on Crossroads as this enthusiastic, strong-headed, pro-life college student. I really felt like God wanted me to do something. And when I heard about Crossroads, I thought, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing thing. Like you get to do this sacrifice and then also talk to people about the pro-life cause. But I had no idea. I had no idea how challenging it was going to be. I had no idea how much God was going to call me to, and all of the people walking, I think, call us to really stretch ourselves. With the accident and the long-term effect of her injuries, Amy feels like the pilgrimage she started with Crossroads never really ended. The pilgrimage I thought was going to be one summer, I think continues on for me because I still have a lot of pain from the injuries. And um, I still continue to offer it up and I still continue to feel very peaceful and very grateful about what happened that God continues to allow me to have something to give him um, on a daily basis. After the accident, Crossroads implemented new safety protocols and trainings to better ensure preparedness for emergencies. The Crossroads pilgrimages are now in their 25th year. We'll be right back. Hi everyone, this is CNA producer Jonah McKeown. If you're a fan of CNA Newsroom or CNA Editor's Desk, there's a good chance you listen on your morning or evening commute. As you know, fewer people are commuting to work right now, and as a result, fewer people are listening to podcasts. The listenership for many podcasts has dropped by 10% or so between March and April. 
Listening and subscribing to our podcast won't cost you a dime, but it does help us out a lot. The more people listen to our podcasts, the more likely it is that podcast apps will recommend our shows to new listeners. So, after you listen to this episode of CNA Newsroom, consider queuing up another one. We've included suggestions in this week's show notes for some of our favorite episodes we've produced over the years, so that even after this episode ends, you can keep on enjoying the high-quality Catholic podcasting you've come to expect from us. And while you're here, consider subscribing to the show. Just search for CNA Newsroom and CNA Editor's Desk on your favorite podcast app, tap the subscribe button, and enjoy. And now, back to the episode. My name is Tiffany, and um, I went on a pilgrimage with my then-boyfriend. We went on the Camino de Santiago, mostly on the French route, which is the common route that goes from Saint-Jean in um, France to Santiago de Compostela in Spain. We had both just graduated. We are coming back to certification exams and Michael for pharmacy, my for my nurse practitioner, and we were thinking of the pilgrimage. I was thinking of what is the future of our relationship. He was thinking of proposing. My sister and I had joked before. We were like, "Oh, this is a big, big trip, big, big experience. He might propose." And so it was on my mind, but it was something I hadn't really like. We had talked about marriage. We had talked about everything before, but not specifically on this trip. When you go in towards getting engaged, um, you're thinking of a lot of things. And I feel like, depending on the personality, you're thinking of every single outcome of not only an engagement, but trying to like think of your marriage. Like, is, that, is this right? Like, do I have every single quality that I'm needing? Do I have like spirituality perfectly in check that, that everything will work out? We had a layover and we were sitting at this cafe and he's like, I can tell something's on your mind. He's like, what is it? And I was like, yeah, it's nothing. And the whole time I was thinking of this, I'm like, what should I do? Like, if he proposes, what should I say? And this is before the Camino even started. I still remember day one. We were hiking out of Pamplona. We were about an hour into it, so not very far, but we thought we had done a great job and we were we were really making headway. We stopped to have a picnic and we got out oranges and we got out chorizo and we got out all of this food that we had to eat. And um, all these pilgrims are passing us just looking at us like, you've only been on the road about an hour. To, <laughs> so like, what are you doing? And But we, we sat down and we had a big picnic. So we were still very much novice, novices at this pilgrimage thing. It was a few more days into it. We um, were packing up and I was very much... Uh, the mindset you start at, <laughs> start at 5 a.m., you start before the light, you get out there, you have to make it through, and you can relax in the afternoon. And so we are always starting first thing in the morning, and I was always ready and trying to rush Michael along and, and help him out and get him ready. So as I'm throwing stuff in my bag, I realized she had always been very possessive of his bag. He did not want me to look at it. He did not want me to hold it. Nothing. He had a tripod in there. I just saw this and I'm like, there's only, there's no way he would be carrying a tripod all the way on the Camino unless there was something very important to get a picture of. And we've passed many beautiful cathedrals. We've been in Madrid and we've been in Pamplona and he has yet to take this tripod out and take a picture. So there is not a church that he's looking to use this tripod on. And I just knew that 
there was a moment that he was going to be proposing. And the first thing that came to me was actually panic. It was not joy. It was panic. What if I get to the end and I don't actually want to be engaged? What if I don't want to be together? I don't remember exactly how the conversation came up, but I decided that I was going to break up with him. And for him, he didn't really know where exactly that came about. It was quite a shock. So there were some tears and there was some, um, a little bit of anger, and we decided to walk apart. He being much taller than me and a faster walker, he was easily able to get a kilometer or so ahead of me, and I was walking slow and just blubbering and crying and uncertain and just thinking that I was very lonely and I was very unsure. I just didn't know what to do. There was a, another pilgrim that was a Spanish man. He was a little bit older. His name was Fernando. And we nicknamed, because a lot of people got nicknames on the way, we nicknamed him Mighty Mouse because he was just the short guy. He was stout and he was so fast. He was faster than most of the younger people and cheerful attitude. He was just such a wonderful guy. And so Fernando happened to walk by me that day and he just started walking with me and I just started talking to him and he asked me why I was crying and and we just started talking about everything uh, about Michael and about me and about our relationship and about this pilgrimage and, and getting engaged and he just listened he didn't really say anything there was no profound advice um, but he listened and he smiled and, and kind of said everything will be okay and we got into the next little town and I found that Michael was waiting from there, we started walking again, but we still left it as we're not together. We're not sure what we'll do, but we'll walk together. We got to a, a little town called Carrion de los Condes, and we stayed at a convent of um, Augustinian sisters. I don't know much about the order, but I do know that they're around Spain, and they have this convent specifically as an outreach to the pilgrims. And so they invite the pilgrims in. And in the evening, they have a, a program of singing songs. Everyone brings something for dinner. And you have a big dinner together. And the sisters sit with the sisters and talk. And I still remember the sister who sat with us. And inevitably, they people, you know, they ask you what you're on Camino for and how you know everyone. And, and so we start to share our story that we were we were dating and, and that Michael was going to propose. And she was just not. She was like, oh, that's so beautiful. This is so wonderful. And all the while, I'm just feeling guilty and guilty and still anxious and still almost still shaky when I'm just telling the story. She just really said, she's like, don't be anxious. Just don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Um, don't have anxiety and um, just be at peace. I knew that I was still holding on to that anxiety. Um, and I was really looking for um, everything to be perfect. And... Uh, I think that on a pilgrimage, you're looking for everything to be perfect. In life, you're looking for everything to be perfect. And even in, in the spiritual sense, of, I said, oh my goodness, I need, a, I need to have a spouse who has everything that I want, everything that I think is important. He needs to have a spiritual life that is completely together. I think at that point, that was the decision that I said, you know what? I do actually love Michael, and I have loved him. And I think that any time you go forward in a vocation, it is a risk. So getting engaged with somebody naturally is a bit of a risk, but it is a risk that I want to take.
And the thing was, is, I was like, does he actually want this? Because this woman just rejected me. <laughs> and I've had to walk across Spain with her. And so that was kind of the, the other part. So we continued walking and we had actually planned to do about half the way on the French route. And then we went up um, after Lyon to the north route of the Camino. And the first place that we were catching the Camino on was a little town called Luarca. We went to mass and that was actually a moment that Michael said he prayed and he felt very at peace. He said, yes, I, I do want to propose again. We were walking out of Luarca, um, maybe 30 minutes on the road, and we had stopped. We were putting on a little bit of sunscreen. We were having a snack, and he just decided that he was going to propose. So he just got it down on one knee. He didn't even have the ring right away. So he's like, stop, stop. He's like, Panic, I've got to do it again. So he's fumbling through his bag to find the ring to propose again. And then from there on, we, we were walking as um, the rest of the pilgrimage a little bit changed. We arrived at the cathedral, middle of the day, we had that just that moment of prayer and going in and, and making the true pilgrimage into the cathedral. We ran to the store. We both got some clothes that looked a little bit more presentable for the next day. I had my hair done. He got a haircut. And we had our engagement photos then done around Santiago de Compostela, which are some photos we really cherish. They're really beautiful photos. We're coming up on our fourth anniversary next month. And we have a couple little kids, which might be the background noises that you hear in between. Um, a two and a half year old, and actually the little Max is one years old today. Marriage, of course, as I'm sure everyone who is married will say that there is many challenges into it, as there should be, it's a vocation. It should make you holy. It should be your path of holiness. Um, but there's so much grace and there's so much blessings and so much continued growth that Maybe you just don't anticipate. You kind of think you're like, oh yeah, we know each other. This is it's just going to be what we know. <laughs> so with Michael and I, I'm continuing to learn ourselves more, learn um, the, how the Lord has really created us and blessed us, and together in in our marriage as well. I'd say that's almost a bigger pilgrimage, a very joyful one too. So it is not not a happily ever after, but a happily continuation. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. Special thanks to all our guests on this week's episode. See you next week. <laughs>